So I am with a gentleman that has a podcast called Theology in the Raw. His name is Preston Sprinkle, but I'm here's how I want to introduce Preston to you, the listener. And I'm just pulling this quote from his website. So Preston, if you don't like this one, it's your fault. <laughs> is that fair? That's fair. That's fair. Just you know, trying to do a little research with you. I found this one in your kind of bio page about you. Favorite foods, Indian, Thai, Mexican, pub fare, pepperoni pizza with triple pepperoni, maybe quadruple pepperoni, <laughs> and beer. Oh, and barbecue. <laughs> Texas-style barbecue. Throw him a rack of ribs, and he might just lose his sanctification. <laughs> that is a guy that I wanted to meet and do an interview with. <laughs> well, it's not the healthiest diet, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, I can't say I you know, because I want to live past 50, I don't have that every day, but I am uh, a weakness when it comes to all those things. So, well, I, I mean, I don't want to cause trouble in your life, but I, you know, I live in Texas. I married a Texan and I have a traditional Texas pit barbecue smoker. Oh, wow. Oh, I right. smoke the meat. Oh, man. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's like yeah. a religion for me. Well, in Texas, I mean, I've been there a few times, and it does. I mean, people get into like pretty raging arguments about the best way to 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 smoke <laughs> to do barbecue, man. I mean, I've seen people like really get pretty emotional about it. So, yeah, I think it does have some religious qualities. Yes, it does, because people do get emotional about religion. And you know, I've I discovered your podcast, Theology in the Raw, kind of recently, and enjoyed the thoughtfulness and, frankly, a lot of just the kindness. Uh, in which you have these conversations about really intense stuff. But then, you know, when I ask you to do the interview and you're like, okay, but what do you want to feature? This idea of a Christian sexual ethic really mm -hmm. sparked my interest because I am not a theology guy. Um, you know, I, I have a master's in clinical psych and a PhD in psychology and I went to Wheaton mm. College for the master's, so I got some theology, but I'm fairly ignorant when it comes to that. And you have quite the long, distinguished career in theology. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I grew up as a, all the way back from like a recent convert at 19 years old, just immediately fell in love with the Bible. And I wasn't I wasn't naturally an academic at all. I don't think I read a book until I was like 17 years old. Like I cheated my way through high school. I hated to study. I was more of an athlete, ball player. And but when when I got saved at 19, I just fell in love with studying the Bible. Like I couldn't get enough of it. And, well, I mean that's you know the short story is I just kept pursuing theological degrees and until I just couldn't do anymore and decided I need to do something with this now. So yeah, I went and got a master's degree, a PhD, in, in biblical studies and. And even after that, I still had more questions that were really about the Bible and wanted to kind of solve everything about the issue. But for me, it was never, it was never like just an academic or esoteric thing. For me, it was always with a goal of what does this look like in real life? Like I never understood the distinction between being a, a you know, a deep and in-depth studier and then a people person, like either you're a theologian or a pastor. Like for me, that that dichotomy never made sense. Um, I wanted to do both. I wanted to do both. I wanted to do 
in-depth Bible study, do theology, read high academic books, but to do so in such a way that I can communicate those truths to the average person in the pews. So, um, yeah, that's been me for the last 20 years and the last several years. Uh, the conversation about sexuality, gender, LGBTQ questions, issues, people in the church has been kind of my full-time job. And uh, it's been an interesting, <laughs> it's been a very interesting ride. So. Well, I can imagine because that is some pretty intense conversation. Well, intense opinions on both sides. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I've said before on, on this show that it, it breaks my heart that people can't have a conversation where they disagree in an honoring yeah. way. It's just we've lost that yeah. ability. And it's like, come on. We're not yeah. all going to think the well, same. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually good. <laughs> you're the psychologist i've always wondered that like what's going on there like why can't people have <laughs> just a non-angry conversation about these things i don't know well i you know there it's obviously going to be multifaceted but <laughs> i think now we have just kind of put ourselves you know i can remember i can't remember what election it was but my wife's uh brother-in-law is a was a big time political strategist and mm-hmm. and he made this comment. He's like, this is getting so out of control. He said the conservatives, mm-hmm. they were conservative. They're going to lose. And what's sad is they probably agree with Mitt Romney, I think it was, on eight out of ten of his things. But because they don't agree on two of them, mm-hmm. they're not going to vote. And he was right. Oh, wow. It was great. And wow. I thought, what is going on? <laughs> it's getting it's, – it's, yeah. it's a sad – uh, toll in our society and but people yeah. like you are doing these crazy events all over the country and mm-hmm. are you finding that you're able to have healthy conversations around these intense <laughs> topics yeah yeah yes and no i think that there is a um i think there's very loud people on the extreme ends of probably any hot button issue, whether it's politics or, you know, theology or sexuality and gender. I mean, I mean, there are the the people on the extreme ends that are very loud and they, I think, produce a lot of fear in the largely silent middle, middle of the road person that just wants to have a good conversation, just really wants to understand the issues and is kind of scared to speak up for fear of being kind of shouted down or whatever. But yeah, what I'm finding is I'm, I'm, I mean, my audience is that silent very large little group that says, Hey, you know, I love the Bible. I think the Bible teaches that marriage is between a man and woman, but Hey, I also have a gay son and I love him. And I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to manage both grace and truth in this. And, uh, I just want to have a conversation. Can you help, help guide me in, you know, integrating both grace and truth in, in, you know, the situation. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of people that, that, genuinely want to have they're they're kind of tired of the social media outrage culture where you know they're scared to say anything or even ask a question for fear of getting kind of shouted down so i think um yeah i I, i'm really hopeful for the future um of the church i think there's yeah people are really just wanting to engage good solid conversations and and uh yeah yeah Yeah, it feels like it feels like the tide is turning and let me let me dig a little deeper on this one Mm because it i'm realizing this actually might be a very helpful topic for for my mm-hmm. listeners but so if you're a if you're a christian parent okay mm-hmm. and 
you end up with a son or daughter, you know, gay or lesbian. Well, how mm-hmm. how can they have that conversation, or how do they approach that with their child, and uh, you know, trying to honor their Christian traditions or uh, you know, biblical yeah. theology, and at the same time, you know, how can they honor their their child? That's a grab. That's that's <laughs> you just jumped right in with a million dollar question. I you know, did. I, I think um, I I think there is with with parents that are solid Christians, they're committed to the scriptures. Um, I think there is a lot of fear that if they love too much, that they are um, not maintaining truth. So if I and, and I even know some parents on the extreme end, they would say because I believe in the Bible, therefore I need to like kick my gay son out of the house or something. And, and, and that's a terrible thing to do, but I think their motivation is, well, that, that's what living up to this truth looks like. And part of what I do is to try to give them freedom to, to love well, love aggressively, love like Jesus loved. I mean, <laughs> you know, Jesus, you know, reached out to all kinds of people who were living a life that he wouldn't have agreed with, but he was still hanging out with them. You know, I always, um, one of my favorite stories is right after the conversion of Levi and in, 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 I think it's Luke five, yeah. you know, Levi's a tax collector. He's a Jewish sellout to the yeah. Roman empire committing political and religious treason. Tax collectors were known for living excessively, excessively immoral lives, right? Like they didn't have a religious friend at all. They didn't have a religious bone in the body. They were just aggressively immoral people. So Levi gets saved. And what does he do? He throws a party, invites all of his friends over. And then Jesus shows up to that party. Like, that that would have I mean, there's not a a, a bar or a frat house in Houston that would have <laughs> you know the the sort of vast array of you know stereotypical horrible sinners or whatever in that place that would have rivaled Levi's house in that night. And Jesus went, he went and he hung out, and um, we see him all over the place where he's not just reaching out to tax collectors and sinners and you know marginalized people, but they're they're seeking him out. They're wanting to be around him, and doesn't mean he affirms tax collecting doesn't mean he affirms sin, you know, quite the contrary, but there's not, there's not a single tax collector in heaven who got there because Jesus shared his stance on tax collecting. (laughs) They're there because he reached out in love and yeah. That is a great way to word it. And what, so what, cause I've been, I just did, oh, I finished, I think last week I did this super ADD hyper thing where I, I committed to doing 28 <laughs> straight days of podcasting on oh my um, gosh. exclusively on statements from Jesus that can transform your relationship. And oh, so it just nice. forced me into Christ's words. And that's been a thing for me the last probably five to seven years. Anyways, I, I am, and I'd be, I am super interested if you might have an answer or at least a thought on this one, how on earth have people who have who claim to have read the gospels i do mm-hmm. not understand how they can read the gospels and then not live that out which is what you just said and and part yeah. of the thing i think i ended even on the last episode was if you know jesus gave us the answer on how to change people and that's lay your life down mm-hmm. love them unconditionally yeah. and do it especially when they don't deserve it and I don't know, yeah. I mean, do you have an idea? Like, how do we read that and then have churches yeah. and Christians who are ugly? And I had a dad once said, if my daughter gets pregnant, I'm going to kick her out of the yeah. house. And I looked at him and went, that's a brilliant <laughs> solution. 
you know, <laughs> now you got a 16 year old homeless girl with a baby on the streets. That, that makes yeah. sense. The hates the church because yeah. she's been kicked out of a Christian. <laughs> I know. You know, I, I mean, okay. So in my, I guess, more cynical moments, I would say there's a lot, I'm not saying every Christian or even the majority, but there's a good number of Christians who I do think are, let's say they're Bible reading Christians. They say they're conservative, whatever. And, but at the end of the day, they're probably shaped more by their political views. They're shaped more by their choice media outlets. They're, they're shaped more by presuppositions about what the Bible says or doesn't say. Then they're shaped more by those things, those sort of just cultural environmental things than they are by just simply a raw reading of scripture. I mean, um, let me give you a personal example. So I, um, several years ago, I started studying the topic of homosexuality and I had students coming to me that uh, were asking questions, you know, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I, you know, my, I gave the pat answer. Well, you know, it's sin, you know, and the story, like, you know, do you have another question about like the timing of the rapture or something? We yeah, give me something else, kids. And, 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 and then I said, well, then they started asking like, well, where does it say that? And I was like, well, I don't know, just go read the red letters, go read Jesus. I'm sure he says it all over the place. And they, my students, my Bible college students said, well, actually Jesus never even mentions homosexuality explicitly. And I was and I was like, what? <laughs> and, you know, so I Googled it and found out that they were right. And, <laughs> and here I am. I've got a PhD in the New Testament. Like, that's a very, very narrow degree. And I didn't know. I didn't know that Jesus Christ never explicitly mentioned homosexuality. I just assumed that he did. So, that, I mean, that's just kind of an embarrassing personal example that we do have these presuppositions about what the Bible says, was it, what it doesn't say. And we're often very good at knowing what we believe and often not very good at knowing why we believe it. So I think many Christians, when it comes to this specific conversation, are, whether they know it or not, shaped or driven by presuppositions rather than just kind of a raw reading of Scripture. So I'm, you know, this is, uh, you're listening to Smalley Marriage Radio. I am Michael Smalley. I am having an amazing conversation with Preston Sprinkle who hosts Theology in the Raw, and you have PrestonSprinkle.com, and you have books, and so I encourage everyone to check out his website. Um, to continue this, con okay, so if you're a parent who mm -hmm. maybe you have a, a child who's struggling in homosexuality of some sort, or, or maybe yeah. it's a cousin or a sibling, um, mm -hmm. what I'm hearing is you can love them like Jesus loved mm -hmm. us, and yeah. still honor scripture. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's that. My, so my full-time job is I'm the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. I've been doing this for uh, about two years now full-time, where my main job is helping pastors and leaders think through these questions with theological faithfulness and courageous love. So when it comes to parents, let, let's just give kind of a, a generic scenario. You know, 15-year-old kid comes out to his parent. Mom, dad, I'm gay. Sometimes there's a lot of emotion, a lot of fear, a lot of anger. You know, parents are kind of freaking out. Kids, you know, vulnerable. Well, the average teenager that comes out, usually it takes about three years on average between when they first realize that they're attacked with the same sex to when they actually start to verbalize that to other people. That three-year period, uh, the, the first thing that I think statistically 96% of every gay or lesbian person does, when they first realize they're attracted to the same sex, the first thing they do, whether they're religious or not, they pray. They pray to God, Allah, you know, Yahweh, whatever, yeah. the higher power, please take this away, please take this away, please take this away. Sometimes they're up all night in tears, weeping, sweat, 
take this away, take this away, take this away. And God doesn't take it away. Then they start feeling a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of turmoil. And they're going through this all by themselves. And then in almost every case, there's suicide ideation. Maybe if I just take my life, then all this will just go away. I'm better off dead than to be alive because, especially if they're raised in a religious context, sometimes they will think, you know, God hates me. I'm an abomination. I'm, you know, God just can't stand the thought of me. And they're going through all this as a 13, 14 year old by themselves. And all of this, it precedes them coming out and finally saying, mom, dad, I'm gay. So if you, if you went through an experience like that, I mean, can you imagine the level of trauma this person's already gone through? So what would you want from the other side of that conversation when you, after three years out of fear and anxiety and depression and suicidality, finally tell your parent that you're gay? And when the parent responds, you know, why are you doing this to us? Or, you know, when did you choose this? Yeah. <laughs> or, or like, you know, what about the girl you dated in the know. It's like, no, man, what do you want in that moment? You want somebody just to look into your soul and just listen and say, thank you so much for telling me this. I am committed to you. I love you. Please, please. There's nothing more I want right now than to hear what is going on. Can you unpack this? I just want to be a listening ear. And I, and you need to say it probably a thousand times, no matter what you say, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're feeling, I love you and I am with you in this. I mean, that, that, that doesn't mean I agree with same-sex marriage. None of that conveys that. It just means that you're loving the person. And even if somebody says they're gay, all that means is that they're attracted to the same sex. doesn't mean they've had sex. doesn't mean they're even lusting after somebody of the same sex. It just means they have this unwanted attraction. So the parents that I know that have entered into that very difficult space, I mean, it's traumatic for the parent too. So I don't want to you know, just say it's super easy, but... Uh, the number one thing, the number one, two, three, and four thing to do is just listen, 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 just be there for them. You can see it, the theological conversations, th- those will come. Um, we can have that down the road, but right now you just need to be a safe person to, to listen to them. Well, and, and please, I give you full permission to correct me if I'm an idiot. <laughs> and, and it's always possible, but, it, you know, as, as I've studied Scripture, and, and especially as I've really tried to focus in on Christ's words and his commands and what are, you know, cause he says over and over again, if, if you love me, obey my commands. Um, is it possible that I, I can influence someone by loving them unconditionally because that's what Christ did. For, like, my heart was changed. My life was changed. My behavior was changed when, because Christ laid down his life and died for me. Mm-hmm. So it feels yeah. like his expectation is I do that with others. Yeah. And, and it feels like we get a little bit derailed because we get, yeah, we do. We get scared and yeah. we think, oh no. But it, it, it's, I guess maybe my question for you is why is it, or, or have you ever, talked about why you know we as Christians tend to pick some sins or some things mm-hmm. in scripture and those are you know that's like really bad but this other stuff's okay because yeah. doesn't Christ command like not just love others but specifically love others when they're not 
being nice to you or kind to you or if they're not living in a way that you think honors him. Yeah, it's almost like the kindness of God leads to repentance, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paul says exactly in Romans Romans two four. You know, and 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 that's a really I mean it's it's a very practical statement. The kindness of God leads to repentance. And if it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, then we should embody that kindness if we want people to repent. Um, and if we flip that around, then we're in theological heresy. If we think that our repentance leads to God God's kindness then we're front-loading our works before salvation. And then now, now we're back to sanctification preceding justification or works preceding, you know, salvation. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, it, oops, off here. Um, yeah, I think uh, we've lost, we, we think that with certain kinds of sins that we need to kind of lead with the law or lead with, you know, hammering people in their sin, and that's going to lead to repentance. And, and look, maybe there's some situations, some instances where people need the tough love, and I'm not saying that that's not ever the case, but in this conversation, again, when somebody is already struggling with a lot of rejection, shame, guilt, you know, really bad thoughts about their, themselves, uh, what they need in that moment is the embodiment of God's kindness. I don't need to be quoted, you know, Leviticus in that moment. Um, and I guess I, going back to your other question, I think that, again, I think that there are a lot of false assumptions about homosexuality being kind of the worst sin of them all. Here's what's interesting. So same-sex sexual relations are explicitly mentioned in five or six passages in the Bible. They're always prohibited. Um, but in every single one of those prohibited passages, there's a whole long list of other sins that every single straight person listening to this right now has probably committed before noon. <laughs> like yeah. if you look at Romans one, which is kind of the famous, you know, don't have gay sex passage. Read the rest of Romans one. There's like 30 sins listed that we've all committed probably on a daily basis. Like, um, the Bible simply doesn't single out same-sex. I, again, I do think same-sex sexual relations are sin. I think marriage between a man and, man and a woman, I would go to the grave with that belief. I believe it's very clear in Scripture. But we are all broken sexually. We're not more broken than other people. And, and we may struggle with something different than somebody else, but we are all equally in need of God's grace, broken in our sexuality, and in need of His forgiveness. And I think until we see it that way, we will continue to kind of marginalize Certain kinds of sinners, because you know, I mean, again, maybe this is a psychological thing, but it seems like we're most prone, we're we're, we're more likely to vilify the sins that we're most uh, less likely to commit. Oh. So the sins of the other, of the minority, of that person, or why would they struggle with that? Or I've heard a lot of my state friends say, "I just don't get it. I just don't get it." Like I just, well, you don't need to get it. Like just because it's not your struggle doesn't mean it's not a struggle with somebody else. I mean, go to a third world country or have a third world, somebody in a majority world country visit here and they look around at all at greed and comfort and excessiveness. And they're just like, I don't get it. How can you Christians, I don't understand how you can say you're a Christian and have all this stuff. Like, (laughs) you know why? Because it's all around us. It's not, it's, it's, you know, there's something that the majority struggles with. The majority of Americans struggle with greed. And so it's easy for us to kind of sweep that under the rug because it's, you know, an, an attack to kind of struggle that somebody the, the minority struggle, you know, that's what you might have. Oh, I, and I have to highlight, I love how you said we tend to villainize, you know, we tend to really catastrophize the sin yeah. that we're not struggling with. And and that was, yeah. you know, obviously you and I are meeting and talking for the first time. 
But one of the things I did over the summer, and I think where Christ has worked on my heart in a lot of different areas, is I used to say in these very kinds of debates or discussions with couples or people, um, you know, I was morbidly obese, which is a terrible term, by mm. the way, especially when your doctor is your friend. <laughs> and he's like, Smalley, you're morbidly obese. I was like, oh, well, I don't like that word very much. <laughs> and it's like, like you said, greed, most of us struggle with that every day. Selfishness, we struggle with that every day. I'm, right. you know, I'm sitting there as a morbidly obese person going, well, wait, who am I? Right? Like, yeah. I mean, I got my junk and I got my struggle. Yeah. And, and I think if, if, yeah, if you're a parent of someone that is hurting and struggling and trying to figure it out and, uh, that the the safest or most loving position is to recognize that man we're all broken we're all damaged mm -hmm. and be careful that we don't yeah villainize what was it what was yeah. the word was it villainize that doesn't feel like that was we're the both word. yeah uh, vilify vilify, vilify. Or, or just yeah whatever verb you want to no there. i like just vilify treat as different yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, I couldn't remember. I got talking and I was like, great, what was that word again? But the vilify, we have to be careful of that. And, and it, okay, let me ask you yeah. this. So it kind of feels like Jesus, if, if we were to go, hey, what's like the worst sin that I need to just run away from mm -hmm. and don't even flirt with? Wouldn't it be kind of that pharmaceutical heart? The, the mm, sin of yeah. thinking, I'm in. I'm in the club. I'm a disciple, but I'm not because my heart isn't about yeah. loving God and loving others. My heart's really about looking good and sounding good and control and mm -hmm. manipulation. And, and those people don't even know they're in trouble. Well, I think it's kind of beyond dispute, really. It seems pretty clear that the sin, the sin that Jesus addressed most aggressively was the sin of self-righteousness. Like, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I don't think that's, that's just an observation, not an argument. I don't think anybody would really dispute that. Well, I and know, it was in but scripture, I didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but I mean, and again, he stood up for those who were considered, uh, I like the phrase, like socially unacceptable sinners. Like, and we have this category, whether we know it or not, like, look, if you're in a Bible study and you say, hey, it's confession time, and you know what? Half the room is going to say, "I'm struggling with pride," you know, or my prayer life. Like those are socially acceptable sins. But if you, like my friend of the day, was in a Bible study and, and they were sharing, it was being authentic, and he stood up and said, "You know what? I've internally, I've felt like a woman my whole life, and I, I've struggled with wanting to change my sex." You know, and all here it was crickets because struggling with your gender identity is a socially unacceptable sin. Right. <laughs> um, but when you, you know look at the life of Jesus, and he. Rather, I mean, just aggressively critiqued and rebuked those who were very religious but self-righteous, and the ones that he reached out to in love and acceptance were those who were considered marginally, you know, marginalized sinners or socially unacceptable sinners. The woman caught in adultery, the tax collectors, and and sexual sinners, and so on. And again, it doesn't mean that Jesus approved of sexual immorality. It doesn't mean he was pro-tax collecting. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is like one of the most religiously like uptight sermons. <laughs> that's a, that's a bad way to put it. I mean, it's one of the most strict religious speeches in all human history. So, I mean, he has a very, very high ethical standard, but he aggressively loves those who fall short of that standard. And so I think when, again, especially when it comes to sexuality and gender, 
Christians just need to embody that same kind of posture of Jesus in this whole system. And what would so if someone's hearing self righteous, what would be a good yeah. kind of layman's, you know, simple definition? Yeah. Like, because that is that. I mean, that you know, I used a terrible word, pharmaceutical, but I just like it. I like how it sounds. <laughs> but what would yeah. be just a good definition of? self-righteous being yeah. the sin of self-righteousness yeah i think it's very yeah i guess that's the phrase i mean technically self-righteous is just thinking that your own righteousness kind of earns favor before god but it's, i i'm using it more broadly to to include things like hypocrisy or um so you know somebody listening may not um struggle with same-sex attraction but do they struggle with greed pride or opposite sex attraction lust are they addicted or struggling with porn? Uh, do they struggle with, you know, idolizing money or comfort? Uh, do they struggle with not being concerned with the poor? And the answer, hopefully that's leveled the plane. Hopefully there's not a single person listening who can check off the box and nope, 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 don't struggle. <laughs> so it's like, we, we are all struggling with something. So I think when I say self-righteous, it's kind of like, you know, kind of ignoring or, or just like downplaying your own struggles. And then really, vocalizing, you know, your disapproval of somebody else's struggle when you look at, I mean, it's a classic log in your eye thing where it's like, well, wait a minute, you got all this junk in your closet, which is, which is fine. We all have junk in the closet, but let's not vilify somebody else because they have a struggle different. Let's just look at other people as a fellow struggler. There, there's a, um, a preacher, DT Niles, old Methodist preacher from hundred years ago. He said, Christianity is like one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. <laughs> I, I love it. Love, to me, that, that just captures the New Testament. Like, if that that should be our posture, one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread, you know, rather than, you know, a former beggar or somebody like, oh, what's that beggar doing over there? And, you know, no, we are all beggars in need of bread. And just because, <laughs> you know, yeah, just because our, our, you know, struggle is different from others doesn't mean we're better than them. No, and, and doesn't it, I mean, and I might be oversimplifying this, but I had somebody years ago uh, talking on this very thing, uh, just with me privately, about, you know, how do you, how do you have a healthy, loving mm -hmm. conversation with, a, with someone who might be struggling with homosexuality mm -hmm. or just, you know, sexuality, period. Now, uh, yeah. doesn't it all come down to don't put anything above Jesus? So whether that's homosexuality or for me, it was food. And that's where I got confronted last a year ago, around this time a year ago. I, you know, I was at a suicidal place because my eating, oh, wow. I was so powerless and it was so out of control. And I'm married to this really hot, attractive woman who's, you know, taking care of herself over 24 years of marriage. And then there's me. And, and, and so I got to that place of, of suicide, and I, and I wonder if that's not really just the overall problem is wow. what the Holy Spirit convicted me of was, dude, you, you, you really, I, I, what I said in my head is I would rather eat and be happy and die early than be mm. healthy in this area. And that's where the Holy wow. Spirit was like, so what you're telling me is food is more important to you than I am. Gosh, wow, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if uh, if you go Genesis to Revelation, the most, I think it's the most 
widely mentioned sin is idolatry, which we all know, you know, in the Old Testament context, typically referred to, you know, literal idolatry, yeah. but then even Ezekiel talks about, you know, idols of the heart and idolatry is putting anything above God. And, and, uh, again, that, yeah, man, that levels the playing field, right? Whether it's, uh, somebody's pride, somebody's same sex attraction, somebody's opposite sex addiction or fruit addiction or whatever, or high view of self, low view of self, whatever it is. I mean, we're placing these things above, above God and, and, Whatever it is, at the end of the day, it's probably linked to idolatry on some level. Yeah, I think you're, yeah, what you said earlier, I think that's spot on. And could it even be, because here's one I want to throw out that I don't, doesn't feel like people are talking about it, but I could just be totally deaf and ignorant. But couldn't, because I just had a conversation with a guy two days ago, no, yesterday, who God had just been moving towards a relationship with him and he kind of reached out to me in desperation and I I met with him at my home and and I eventually just looked at him and said brother I'm just going to tell you right now you you have basically told me that your wife and son who she divorced him but that your wife and son are more important to you and more necessary to mm. your satisfaction life than God is man your marriage and child yeah. were an idol and that's why you got so yeah. freaked out is is can our marriage even be an idol? Oh yeah, that's that's the most subtle one too. Because when bad things are an idol, you know that's one thing. Okay, your drug addiction is an idol. It's like okay, I, I, clearly I need to stop that. But when good things become an idol, and they absolutely can, that that's where the danger lies. Because you can mask that over, and I, you know I've struggled with that too. I you know I've, I've got a wonderful family, four amazing kids, and we. We just, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, the thought of, uh, God forbid, ever losing a kid, like, I, I often think about that. Like, if one of my kids died, which obviously has happened to so many people, would, would, would I be able to maintain my faith in God? Like, would that, what would that do to my faith? I'm hoping that it would be obviously, obviously tragic, but through that suffering would bring me closer to God. But as I kind of envision that, I'm like, I don't know, man, that would be so incredibly traumatic and devastating, I, I can't confidently say that that would bring me closer to God, you know? And but again, that, that's, that would be perhaps elevating one of my kids above, you know, above God. Um, and, that, and, and that's, yeah. It, that's a, yeah. And it feels yeah. like, you know, people don't want to talk about that, right? It's kind of like yeah. what you've already mentioned in this show. You know, we'll talk about homosexuality and, and crush them, but we're not going to, no, 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 let's not talk. I don't want to touch the kids or my wife or my husband or, you know, whatever, right. or food. You know, let's leave those alone because yeah. those are acceptable sins. Food, food's got to be a tough one in, oh. in Texas, man. <laughs> Let me tell you. So here's how relentlessly loving and gracious and merciful that God is and I actually did a sermon over this, you know, over the summer. But, you know, after I had that thought a year ago, it was like, hey, you have a problem. And it was like God just started to intervene and started creating moments and opportunities for me to get healing. And so I ended up in June uh, in South Africa having gastric bypass surgery. How crazy oh, wow. is that? Yeah. And, and how he... Yeah, I think people being, no matter what you're going through, right, is one of the things my wife said after, and I've shared this before, but is, you know, I just, she told me after surgery, 
uh, I just appreciate that, you know, in this 20-year struggle I had, that you never quit. Now, there was, wow. you know, I had a few years in there at the end where <laughs> I had definitely laid it down and been like, I'm, in, I'm all in on this sin. And, mm. but, you know, I think when you have the Holy Spirit, it just, in, at least in my experience, uh, he, he just didn't allow me to be comfortable there. Mm. And, and yeah. it feels like what we should be concerned with for people is, hey, are you in love with Jesus? I don't, you know, I don't care if it's homosexuality, if it's overeating, if it's greed or narcissism or whatever. Are you willing to fall in love with Christ? And I, it just feels like that—that's where He has come to heal the brokenhearted, and He mm -hmm. does it. He's, yeah. he's really faithful with that. Yeah, I mean that's so cool that, gosh, that you went through all that and and admitted it and, and found healing and, and, and not even that you're going to have a perfect track record from here on out. My goodness. I mean, nobody does, but it's just, I think we need more of that. Like Christian leaders, um, pastors and, and thinkers to, to show that they don't have it all figured out that they are again, a fellow beggar who has found bread, who is still a beggar and still in need of God's grace every day through whatever, whatever thing they're working through. And, and I've already uh, typed out that. Time, I, you, you could empty a church by preaching against <laughs> Gluttony, or I like yeah. food. <laughs> yes, you can. That's one of the most least talked about. <laughs> it is, and that's and that was you know I'm having to change. I've lost 105 pounds since June. Oh wow! And it's Golly. it's been in yeah it's it's gone uh, beyond any understanding. It shouldn't normally go that fast, but um, mm. but I'm even having to adjust because. I'll, I, you know, I'm real. I, I do comedy as well, and I preach. And I'm a pastor, mm. and obviously help couples. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm even having to make an adjustment now because I had such this blatant sin in my life that I could get away with saying things, and you know, because you mm -hmm. know, people look at you and they're like, "Yeah, you got a problem." And so I've had to even start. <laughs> you know, I've had to start a like I the other day I was with a guy that was he's another pastor. We we're in the mountains of Colorado. And he was the same size that I was back in June. And so we're like getting to know each other and he was hilarious. And I'm laughing and he patted his belly to go, yeah, well, you know, and I literally patted my own and he looked at me and went, what are you doing? I went, I am so sorry, but I used to have a belly. And so I'm used to doing that. Oh, wow. We laughed, yeah. but I, I think it, what I appreciate so far is and it and it sounds like what you're what you're doing and you're having these leadership kind of they're it seems like they're one day events. So we do um, all around the country. It's about fourteen a year. They're called one day leaders forums on well, we just call them leaders forums, but it's on faith, sexuality, and gender. So we um, we talk about the theology of marriage. What is marriage? What is the, what does the Bible say about same sex relations? We talk about relationships. What does it mean to love LGBTQ people um, outside the church, inside the church? What does it mean to love them while maintaining the truth of what God says about marriage? Um, we answer ministry questions like, okay, you know, the, the classic example is, okay, I got a lesbian couple come to my church. They have two adopted kids. They just got saved. They want to be baptized. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we work through all that. Um, we have panel discussions of people who are same-sex attracted, yet pursuing Christ and those that that's the highlight of these days. Um, 
uh, yeah, and the one in Houston in November, uh, I've got a couple great, great speakers. One guy was a anti-Christian gay activist who met God in a pub. Yeah. <laughs> he's the, got an amazing story. Now he's doing a PhD at Oxford. He speaks for Ravi Zacharias's uh, ministries and he's, st- he's still attracted to the same sex. He's committed to celibacy. And so he understands really both worlds. And so he's going to share. And yeah, so it's one thing for me, a straight guy who's married, kind of talk about the topic. And I, and I try to make it you know, as relationally driven as possible, but we always want to hear from people who this is their actual experience. And yeah, it's a, it's a, they're great, man. I've seen, you know, anywhere from two to 250 people usually come per thing. They're all usually in Christian ministry on some level. And, and again, going back to your original question about how are, how do I feel about the tone of this conversation around the country? I mean, man, there were, yeah, there's a lot of people that are truly wanting to love, truly wanting to maintain, you know, scriptural truth, and they just want to do it better. Because the fact is, we have really, I mean, we, generally speaking, have cultivated a really poor reputation um, in this conversation. I mean, if you, if you ask, you know, anybody listening, you know, go ask your gay neighbor, like, what do you think of the church? Do you think the kindness of God? Right. <laughs> and they're going to laugh at your face and be like, no, no, the church hates gay people. Like, that's just, everybody knows that. I don't think it does, but that has been the reputation we've cultivated because we have had several bad apples that have been pretty obnoxious in how they've talked about, you know, gay people as some issue to debate rather than people to people to love. Amen. And it, I mean, for me, it, it, this has been confirming. So hopefully we're not both wrong and find ourselves someday <laughs> in the future in a lot of trouble. But it sounds to me that it, if you want not only change in your own life, but if you really want change, like positive change in someone else's life, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, it comes down to your ability to love them when it's not easy. That. Yeah. That unconditional love and forgiveness is is really the fuel that addresses whatever issue that needs to be that that the person might need freedom from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the heart of the Christian message. I think. I mean, it's the whole love your enemies thing. Like even tax collectors love those who are easy to love, but. What makes Christians distinct is we love the unlovable because God loved the unlovable while we got sinners. Christ died for us and loved us. So, which we it, it's basic Christianity, but it's, it is so hard to do. Of course, it's hard to do. It's hard to love people that are nasty and mean and selfish and whatever. And yeah, yeah. But that I'm telling you, that has been the biggest conviction of my life in more recent years. Uh, sadly, like just several years, is it really doesn't matter what I do with people that are easy to love who are being kind and generous mm-hmm. to me, it, it really comes down to, am I able to, yeah. you know, I know I'm a disciple of Christ when I'm able to love those people that are difficult. And if I, if I make a mistake, that's understandable, but I, I need to be aware enough to go and repair because it mm-hmm. matters. Yeah, it so matters good. how I treat people yeah. that aren't easy to the, as you said, the unlovable or the difficult Absolutely. to love. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and just for your insight, your wisdom. Uh, Where could, you know, where could someone find your schedule or what's the best website for them to check out? Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure being on, Michael. This has been awesome. Um, So, yeah, I've I've got two websites. My personal website is com. That one's easy. 
Um, the website where I develop most of my energy, though, is uh, centerforfaith.com, Center for Faith. And that's the organization, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender that I run. And on that website, there's a ton of just resources, videos, um, books you can buy. Uh, we developed a whole small group study called Grace Truth, um, a 10-week study on faith, sexuality, and gender that talks about what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? How do you love your gay neighbor? And, and what is the... What is LGBTQIAI? Yeah. <laughs> like, what does that mean? And why do we need to care? And, um, can people go from gay to straight? And all those questions people have. So, um, yeah, tons of resources. There's free resources. There's resources to purchase. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a one-stop shop. Excellent. I will make sure and include direct links to those things that you mentioned. And just once cool. again, want to thank you for your graciousness, for taking this interview, and, and for what you're doing for the kingdom. Thanks. My pleasure, Michael. Great talking to you. You bet. Thank you.